Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Jory tonight. Special Christmas uh, bonus. Have Jory with us. And uh, our topic is Born Human. This is a Christmas topic, so we'll be talking about why the Lord came into the world and how that worked. And I want to set this up with a, a admittedly sort of appalling, really, really stupid, perhaps the stupidest thing I've ever said in Bible study. Um, which is uh, this picture that came to mind. Uh, what is the most boring journalist job in the world? It is working for the Divine Gazette because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing ever <laughs> changes. There's no news to report. It's just mostly ads and a little comment about still divine and so on, you know. And, um, but... It was really huge when God became human. That was the only time that they, they had to get the biggest type. It actually said, God born Hugh, and then it was hyphenated, and then said man on the next page because the type was you know, too large because uh, it was such huge news. Anyway, uh, that's what we were talking about tonight, only in a much more serious tone than that, I, I hope and trust. Uh, but I'd love to have you come along with us for that journey to examine what was going on when the Lord was born into this world. And will you join me in an opening prayer, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We thank you for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world. Please show us in the pages of your Word who you are and what you were doing here. Amen. So grateful to be with you all, sending out love to those of you online and on the phone. And let me tell you a little bit about this Spirit and Life Bible Study. Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born 1688, died 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life, John 6.63. Spirit, which we take to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life meaning that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly. And since Jesus is the word made flesh, John 1.14, what he says of his words applies, we believe, to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how to get from hell to heaven. Great pleasure to be with you and thinking about the Christmas story and what is going on. So uh, what was going on? Born human was the, was the title that came to me. And the Lord was born into this world, and this can be read in a couple of different ways. First of all, when you're God, to be born human, as I was suggesting before, is really huge news. So in other words, one way of reading that is human as opposed to divine, or not opposed to, but you know what I mean, uh, for God to be born human was really an astounding thing. There's also, however, a meaning of the word human. Um, Swedenborg uses that word in an interesting way. He says in a way that when we are born, we are potentially human, but we only actually become human by going through the regeneration process. Uh, now that's a very different sort of reading of what human means. And an example I would cite of that, uh, that I've used before, is the seven days of creation. That what Swedenborg says those seven days of creation mean is that that's a picture of our own development. So. Every stage of that, although it doesn't look like it, it looks like human only comes in on day seven. But the way Swedenborg reads it, you're human to begin with. But what you're like is you're without form and void. You have water, you have darkness. That, that's, about, that's all you've got to begin with in a spiritual sense. You're sort of formless. And then we go through these stages of development. And all of that is a process of becoming human but you don't actually have human-human life inside you until you get to the end of that process. So the seventh day is when there's something genuinely human, which really kind of blurs into something of the Lord, it, like those qualities of human, 
are really things of the Lord in us, love and faith and compassion and so on. That's what actually makes us human. Before that, uh, we're less than human by one definition. That is not to be used as any kind of pejorative thing about people. You know, it's very important that, that you respect all, all human beings and so on. Um, but so in a way, another thing that born human means is that the Lord was born with a kind of humanity already in place that, that we don't have, a, a humanness on the inside because he had divineness on the inside. Um, uh, I, I want to say something else absurd before we look at Scripture, if I may, which is that, um, picture this, picture this. You find out that there's an island way out in the middle of the ocean, and there are a bunch of people living on that island, but they're completely cut off from the rest of the human race. So what you really want to do is you think about the fact that there are all these satellites circling the world. There's all this communication going on, all these cell phone signals going back and forth. And these people are cut off from the whole thing. And so you decide, well, what I'd like to do, I'd like to you know, take some money out of my nest egg. What I really want to do, what my heart wants to do is to give those people a cell tower, you know, give, give them a cell phone tower so that they can be part of the rest of the world, so they be connected with the rest of the world. So you call up the airline and you say, I'd like to fly to the tiny island nation of Tuvalu and I'd like to bring a cell tower. And they say, okay, well, how big, big is it? You say, well, it's 120 feet tall and it weighs 6,800 pounds. And uh, they say, well, you can't take that on the plane you say, can't you put it down the aisle or, or something? And they say, no, no, you, you, know, you can't take that on the plane. It's too much. What you'll have to do is you'll have to break it into pieces and you'll have to assemble it on site. Isn't it the truth that there's so many things in our world that are too large? You can't fit them on the highways. You know, the only way you can do it is to build it on site. Well, there was something like that about the Lord and what he was doing when he came into this world. Let me show you a little graphic here and try to explain it for those who are getting the audio. You would think, I've got a chart here that says soul at the top and then mind in the middle and the body on the bottom. Now you would think that the way that this ought to work is that your soul would come down into your mind and your mind would come down into your body. That's the way it ought to work. I mean, that would be an orderly process. And yet, that is not how things worked with the Lord when he came into this world. And Swedenborg talks about it, that what happens instead is that the soul builds the body, and through the body, it builds the mind. So on my chart, I have a red arrow that goes down from soul all the way down to body, and then from the body to the mind. In the wonderful, grand language of the old green translations of Swedenborg, this is called going from primes through ultimates to intermediates. <laughs> and um, that's what that means, that you actually go from the inside to the outside and then back to the middle. It's a weird way. And yet, think about it for a second. What the Lord had him inside himself was all divinity, omniscience, everything. Swedenborg even says that within us, there's this... Um, there's just an amazing amount in our inner selves. There's a tremendous wealth. And the fact is, you can't fit it on the plane. You can't fit it on the plane. You have to install it on site. It's the only way to do it. There's too much. There's too much divine stuff. If all that divine stuff tried to come down here, uh, it would just be a flood. It would be crazy. What has to happen, the orderly way, is that you go to the island, you assemble all the little pieces, you build the cell phone tower. Now the cell phone tower is only to, it's still just a vessel to receive signals, right? But once you've got the tower, then you can receive the signals. So the mind is something that is supposed to have all these vessels. I'll just put little sort of cups or circles in here kind of thing. Uh, the mind is supposed to get vessels into which things from the soul can then flow. But the only way to install those vessels 
is to go through the flesh. I don't know if I'm making a lick of sense, but, um, uh, but this, is what, this is what needed to happen with the Lord when he was born into this world. They had to be assembled on site. It's, there's too much. It was too big. And all you're assembling on site is a cell tower. You're not assembling a satellite. You're not assembling a whole series of satellites. You're not assembling you know, millions, billions of points of a network. You're just getting something that can receive all that. But even that is too big to fit on the plane. You can't fit it on the plane. What you have to do is you build the body, and through the body, one by one, you build these vessels. You build these vessels. And eventually, in time, that gets filled by the soul coming down. You remember Old Testament stories uh, where the woman has a jar of oil and she's told to borrow from everybody else and has to get all these vessels. And as many vessels as she gets, that's how much oil she gets. They, they all get filled with something. You have to have vessels to receive this. And this is how it's built. This is what happened with God uh, being born into the world and on a much smaller scale. This is what happens with us too. Now, I think I can illustrate this divide between the soul and the mind by saying this. Uh, some of you may have heard me use this analogy before. That um, when you're feeling sick, your soul knows precisely what is going on. Your soul's running the show. It knows. There's an invasion. There's 403 cents to use carry out a procyclotic. And now we need to elevate the so-and-so, and we need to get all, all these, you know, here's what we're doing. We're going to give them a fever. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Your mind is going, I wonder if it was something I ate. <laughs> you know, you don't have a clue what's going on. And the only way you can find out is by looking at your body, have your body tell you so. Your soul doesn't communicate. We're an interesting apartment building where the third floor doesn't communicate directly with the second floor. You have to go outside through the parking lot and come in this way and up the stairs to get in here. There's no direct connection. But once you do that, then you can sort of hear what's coming through the floor, you know, from the third floor kind of thing, if that makes any sense. So now there's a very different theory afoot that you're probably aware of, good friends, which is that Jesus, when he was born into this world, was just one of three parts of the Godhead. Uh, he was the son born from eternity, and uh, so he always existed. He was co-eternal with God the Father and always existed. This is a non-developmental picture of Jesus. No development. He was, you know, same as the Divine Gazette about God. You know, no development whatsoever. He just... Beep, you know, exactly the same. He was born in this world, but he was exactly always the same. Now, I think I can demonstrate to you tonight, good friends, that that is not what Scripture teaches. So let's go look here in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's start with the Gospel of Matthew and read something a little Christmassy for a change. Let's just go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, just the classic uh, Christmas story. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, what was divine, had to come down in some way into the flesh. Now, how is the divine going to get flesh? This is the purpose of the virgin birth. I don't know the exact mechanism of how it happened, but if God created the universe, he figured out how to do this, you know, and he figured out how to be born into this world in a human body, but that had a divine soul. Go on. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people mm. from their sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now, dear reader, uh, does that say a God with us? Nope. Did it say one of several gods with us? Nope. No, it just said God, didn't it? Yes. It just said God with us. That was God being born into the world. That's who that was. That's what Isaiah prophesied, and that's what happened there. Okay, and he did what they said and so on. And then these wise men come in chapter 2, and uh, Herod is upset about the idea that there's a king of the Jews. And I want to look particularly at this moment here. Okay, so the wise men bring their treasures and so forth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they go back to their own country another way, and they don't go back to Herod. And then look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Okay. Uh, I want to write on the board, uh, number one, needs protection right? Extraordinary kind of protection. I'm talking about Jesus when he was a little baby. It was very important that Joseph and Mary were good people because they needed to listen to the angel and they needed to protect baby Jesus because he was weak like we all are. You know, he, he was in the flesh and he didn't have some way of dealing with Herod. He didn't have some magical ability to zap Herod or something and protect himself. He had to just be airlifted out of there and taken somewhere else, or donkey lifted, or whatever you call it, and uh, had to go somewhere else to be protected. And, uh, and he was there until the death, death, death of Herod, and then came back, and so on. So think about that protection. Okay, so here's a picture. Before he's about two years old, he needs protecting. That's photograph number one. Okay, turn to the right to the Gospel of Luke, if you will. Two Gospels over. Let's go to chapter 2, because I want to see a story. We don't get many slices here, but we see a story of when Jesus was 12 years old. And uh, look at verse 40 in Luke chapter 2. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Became strong in spirit? You mean he hadn't been strong in spirit before? It says became, right? Now, wait a minute. If this was sort of the almighty God born into the world, why did he have to become anything? He needed to be strengthened in spirit? He needed, needed to grow in spirit? What does that mean? But that's what it says. It says he became strong in spirit. He hadn't been as strong when Herod was trying to kill him. He had to be protected. Didn't even know what was going on. His parents had to just get him out of town. But now he's getting stronger in spirit. Go on. And the grace of God was upon him. Aha. Uh -huh. Go on. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Mm. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. This would be kind of a tribal thing, so you get a whole bunch of people who are all traveling together and they're all relatives, so they figure, oh, he's probably just with his cousins or something, and, and don't worry about it. But eventually they figure out, wait a minute, he's not here. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. Said so he was in the temple. Very important to notice, what is he doing? So at two, he has to be taken away out of Herod's reach because Herod wants to kill him. Now at 12, what is he doing? Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He's listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Now you are very familiar with the Gospels and the story that goes on with Jesus later. 
How much time does he spend in his ministry listening to the teachers? Not a lot, as I recall. He, he didn't bother listening. He was done listening, wasn't he, by that point? Isn't he doing a lot more talking than listening at that point? But here he is. He's listening and asking them questions to the teachers. See, what, see where I'm going? There's a development there. Okay, go on. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Ah, see. See, okay. So he was listening to them and asking them questions. And then when they couldn't answer it, he, he would say, well, I think it might be. And they were amazed. Like, wow, where did you come up with that? You know? But he wasn't starting with the, you know, and he wasn't healing animals or people or, or you know. He's a kid. He's 12 years old. He's asking questions, right? There's a development there. So you go from absolute weakness, needing to be protected and so on, to now he's not with his parents. He's back and he's talking to the teachers and he's asking questions. They're astonished, astonished at his understanding and his answers. Uh, go on. Let's just read a little more there. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you have sought you anxiously. Mm. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Aha. Uh -huh. little shift there where it's like, well, who's his real parent, you know, kind of thing. It's shifting. Go on. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Yes. Now, often parents don't understand their kids and kids don't understand their parents and so on. But I think he's developing a little bit where he's getting out ahead of them already at 12, where they're not understanding what he's talking about. What does he do? Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Oh, he did what? He increased in wisdom and stature. Oh, he just did that back in verse 40, didn't he? He became strong in spirit. And oh, now he's increasing in wisdom and stature. Oh, this is a process. This is a development. This is not somebody who was already... I mean, God, if I know anything about God, God is sort of all set, doesn't need a huge kind of learning curve or anything, you know. But Jesus is going through learning here, isn't he? Increasing in wisdom and stature. Go on. And in favor with God and men. So I find that very intriguing. It's such a tantalizing little picture. I wish we knew so much more about Jesus' childhood teenage years and so on, and all that information is hidden in the prophets and in obscure ways, we're told. But, um, but still, we get these clear little photographs. You get a little photograph of him at two, absolutely helpless, has to be protected. Get a photograph of him at 12, asking questions, saying wise things, understanding things, listening to his teachers, obeying his parents. So... 12-year-old ideal kind of state. Not everybody achieves it, but, you know, uh, but, that, but that's good. He's acting like a 12-year-old. He's not acting like God all by himself, right? You know, he's going through a development. Then when you get into his ministry, and I don't have a particular passage picked out here. Um, so you get the three years of his public ministry that most of the Gospels are about, and what do we see? We see all those things that we talked about in weeks past in the Bible study that he's healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, preaching and teaching. Quite a different person. You can see how you got from A to B, but the 30-year-old has a power and authority that that 12-year-old is thinking about, but he's not there yet. He didn't come into the temple saying, hey, he didn't, he didn't come in and cleanse the temple when he was 12. He did that when he was 30. He's growing in, in, in power and wisdom and stature and so on. So this son of God from eternity idea really doesn't do it for me. It doesn't fit the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see a development. He's going through a development. And there are even subtle sort of ways in which you can see, it's a fun little game. Just try playing this game, friends. See if you can even see. I, I've, you know, can you see between 30 and 33? Can you see him develop? Like, does he, does he strengthen? You know, can you see him getting stronger? Even during that time period. Uh, let's go to John. 
So the fourth gospel to the right of where we were. Oh, let's look first at John chapter 17. Very important verses at the beginning of John 17. John can be tough to understand, as lots of other things in Scripture can. Let's read this first few verses. This is at the very end of Jesus' life. Uh, this is around the time of the Last Supper. Uh, he's right on the eve of the crucifixion, so that he's 33. This is the end of his ministry, and uh, here's what he said. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also may glorify you. Yes, the hour has come. And so glorify your Son. There's a process there somewhere. You know, the, 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 there's a glorification process, whatever that means. Uh, Swedenborg says it means the process of becoming fully divine. And uh, we'll talk about that more in a little bit, hopefully. But he's talking about this glorification. Go on. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, given him power, that didn't happen at the beginning. That happened along the way. I mean, we've seen him grow in power, wisdom and stature and so on as he went along. Go on. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. On the earth. Hmm. I have finished the work which you have chosen me to do. Yes, look at that. I've finished the work. Now see, there's a very important detail here that I'll just pause and discuss briefly. But uh, Swedenborg says it's so important to understand the difference between what happened on the cross and redemption. A lot of people think what happened on the cross was redemption. Swedenborg says, no, redemption was already finished before he got to the cross. The cross was glorification. That was his own process of transformation. And look at this here. He says, I have finished. He's still alive in this world, and he's saying, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. I finished it. That was the work of redemption. And what redemption was, in brief, was a matter of gaining control over the hells and reestablishing the spiritual order so that people had freedom. Go on. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Yes, okay, so that's talking about, okay, finish the work of redemption, but now there's this glorification that has to go on. So what I'm saying is that sort of a day or two before he uh, is crucified, Jesus is still talking about a process, a process of glorification, that still remains for him. You know, he's been in it. He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work you gave me to do. But he says, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. That glorification process. And now, the smoking gun passage to me is look at John chapter 18. And let's look at the arrest. You see how we did it? We just went from Christmas right to Easter. Boom. <laughs> just like that. Okay. Now let's look at 18 there at the beginning of the chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the, book, over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and, and his disciples entered. Nice idea that he was in a garden right on the eve of all these terrible things that are about to happen. Go on. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Now look at that. He said he knew all things. He knew exactly how this was going to happen. He knew all things that were about to happen to him. And he starts the conversation. He said, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Yes, and you'll notice in your Bible it might be that the he is in italics, which means that's not even present in the, in the actual original Greek. It just says, I am. Now you know I am is the name of God in the Old Testament. He says, I am, okay? And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now listen to that for a second. He said, I am. They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. And the implication is obviously, I am he. That's who you're looking for and so on. 
but he's also using the divine name. I am. And what happens when he says those words? Read it again at the end there. What was that at the end of verse 6? They drew back and fell to the ground. They drew, this is a whole army of heavily armed people. What do they have in verse 3? The end of the verse there, they have all kinds of things that they're carrying, right? Mm -hmm. They have weapons and everything. And all he says is two words. In Greek, is only one word, amy. This is, I am. And they're blown back to the ground. Pow! I submit to you, friends, that this is a somewhat different person than the person who needed to be shipped across the world to protect him from Herod. Something has happened between picture A and this picture here, picture D. He has grown in strength. Let's put these things up on the board. So number one, needs protection. Number two, asking questions. Right? Number three, just I just want to write the word powerful. In other words, he's preaching, he's healing, he's doing all kinds of things he didn't do when he was 12. And then when he's four, he knocks armed soldiers flat. <laughs> didn't write that very legibly, but it's the truth. So... There's a development there. He went from being somebody who needed, but the angel better talk to mom and dad and get him out of there because he's in deep trouble because Herod could kill him. He was absolutely vulnerable to being killed at that point. And at this point, at the end there, he says, I am, and boom, they're just blown back. And then, go on. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Yes, and then the thing unfolds from there. And I actually think that what he had to do was in, because Swedenborg says that as he was in his divinity, in the divine inner self that he had, he couldn't have been touched. He couldn't have been crucified. Nothing could touch him. So he's in that mode. He's in the divine. You know, he's like 99.44, pure at this point. And uh, they, the only way this crucifixion is going to work is if he kind of goes back down into the humanity for a second and lets them crucify him. But when it starts, he says, I am, and boom, an, arm, an army is just blown back. So what I think has been going on here, friends, is that there was a divine soul that through Mary, in Mary's body, created this body of Jesus. And he was born just like any other human being on the outside. That outer self was the same as any other human being, absolutely vulnerable, had to go through this process. Why? The antenna was too large to fit on the plane. You couldn't do it. It had to be installed on site. You had to build it down here. So you come in the flesh, and then it gets installed where he builds his mind with all these things. And the vessels he's filling his mind with is all different kinds of truth. And mostly, Swedenborg says, he was learning truth from the Word. He was learning from the Old Testament. That's what, those were the vessels that he needed to have. So he understood, oh, there's Jonah. Oh, there's Samson. Oh, yeah, okay, there's Daniel. There are all these people in the Old Testament. And, and he develops these vessels. And the way that he lives his life, he understands, oh, it's all about compassion. Here's what you do and everything. And he gets strengthened and strengthened. See, the point is that he needed to be divine on this level. And he finally succeeded, as you know, good friends, so thoroughly that not only did that mind become divine, but the body disappeared from the tomb. The whole thing was cooked and became divine because he was very successful. Divinity is too big to carry underneath the seat in front of you or in the overhead compartment. You, you, you're not going to be able to do it. You've got to build it piece by piece on site. And he was able to get all those vessels. So he had to be born human and not just human, but his outer self had to be weak and limp like we all are when we're little babies, knowing nothing. 
Swedenborg says that, that the state that he was in as a, in very early infancy is just a phenomenal mystery. Swedenborg won't even comment on Yes? So when he was very young, and uh, so he had to go somewhere you know, to, to, uh, to learn the Bible, wasn't he, as he was connecting with it, wasn't it kind of an awakening process for him, coming out of a fog, reminding him of everything? I think so. The question was, for those of you who can't hear the audio, wasn't it, as he learned scripture, wasn't it sort of an awakening for him? I definitely believe it was like that. Like, it must have been amazing for him to read scripture because, oh, I see what's going on, you know, kind of thing. Like, there would be this amazing sense of, uh, and all the time in the New Testament when he says, haven't you read in the scripture this story and that story? You know, I think these stories were so meaningful to him because he could see all that divine light in there. And it was building these vessels in his mind. Now, we don't go through that same process, but something like that does happen to us. And in a way, it, whatever religion you're in or any experience of this physical world, the laws of nature, all these kind of things are, are different forms of truth, external, internal, that build vessels. And we all get our different vessels. You know, we're all taught there's a line that Swedenborg says, aren't, aren't we what we were taught to be? You know, the, the, the way your education goes, the experiences that you have and so on, those install the vessels that you have that make you unique. And then your soul is communicating with your mind indirectly through these vessels, just flowing little ideas in and stuff. Uh, but it, it's, it's not a direct connection. The mind has to, has to develop. Um, so, um, yeah, that, I, there are a couple of other scriptures I want to read. Let's read, uh, let's go back to Matthew 26. Thinking about born human. Uh, this is in the crucifixion around that time. And this is when Jesus goes out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks the disciples to stay awake with him and they just can't do it. Look at verse 40 in Matthew 26. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's that statement. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's amazing that God was willing to be born human. Because part of the human thing is that the flesh is weak. We're not born with these great thumping, invulnerable exoskeletons. Uh, we have this weak, feeble flesh, you know, and we're, and we're uh, subject to all kinds of problems and so on with our flesh. Uh, it's amazing. The, the, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. The, the Lord just admits it. You know, maybe they're really trying to stay awake, but they're just, oh, sorry, I, I just conked out. Uh, that's the nature of the weakness. And another passage, if you will, let's go through John and through Acts and Romans to the Corinthians there. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, favorite chapter of mine. I know we go here every week, it seems like. And, um, but I just want to read this because it's about the nature of our physical body and then the spiritual body we have after we die. Let's just read verse 35 there. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Mm. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Uh -huh. And what you sow, you do not sow that body. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be. Yeah, not the future body. That's not what you're sowing. But mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. That's right. And then it discusses these various different types of bodies and so on. And then look down at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. Corruption. And it is raised in incorruption. Yes, so the body is subject to this corruption and decay, as we all experience. Do we not, friends? Go on. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Mm. It is sown in weakness. Mm. 
It is raised in power. There's that word weakness again, right? So the, the, the natural body, the earthly body has this weakness, but the spiritual body has power and glory. Go on. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Mm, that's a reference to Jesus. Go on. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. Yeah, that's right. So that's the order in which they come. The natural comes first, then the spiritual. The, the body comes first, and then the mind is built. And this is the only way to do it. A mind is too big a thing. There's another reason uh, that you can probably see good friends for why it needs to go this way. Uh, the, the image that's coming to mind is let's say you went to a, let's say you went to a candy machine for lack of a better analogy and you just wanted to get something. So you look through, you, you look through and you see, oh, where, where is that? Oh, there it is. There it is. It's uh, in uh, B4. Wait, where is B4? Oh, it's right B4, B5. There it is. Okay. And then you hit the button, and the, the glass breaks off of the front of the machine. All the candy comes showering on you, and all the coinage that's in the machine just, you know. Uh, that's what it would be like if you could tap into your inner self, if you could tap into your soul. It would be ridiculous. You know, you wouldn't be sort of picking out this little candy or that little candy and paying your money and hoping it falls down in the right way. Uh, it would just be a torrent, a deli. You just get washed downstream. Uh, in the Lord's order, it's not supposed to work that way. And if it's that way with us, what was it like for this poor little kid? This little baby Jesus, six months old, and you've got all divinity sitting inside, you know, It's got to be done in an orderly way. Let's not have that whole thing come in here and burn down the house, you know? We, we, we got to, the outside, it's the way in so many different things in our world that the outside, the weaker of the two, it's a divine law, the weaker of the two needs to pick the dance or the song or the, you know, whatever it is. Because if two are to work together, it has to be according to the ability of the weakest of the two and the body is invariably the weakest in these situations. So the body has to decide, okay, well, I will just use this. I will just use that. Um, uh, it's so much more orderly. And that way the body doesn't get sort of, can you imagine? You, you know what I mean? Uh, I, I've thought of this analogy at one point that you may have heard me use before where, where it would be like, you know, those high power lines that come down from Niagara Falls, just trying to attach your boom box directly into that 200,000 volt line, you know. It would be ridiculous. Like, that's more electricity than I need. You know, you need, you need something to just step it down. And then something can say, I choose to be part of this grid. You know, I would like a little electricity right now, but not too much. You know, and just choose what you need. When you're done with the light, turn it out. And it's not... Uh, there's so much power there that it's the order of the thing to have it be built this way and to be built uh, gradually and to grow. It's so interesting to me that it's said twice in Luke there that he grew in wisdom and, and stature. And, you know, it really emphasizes that this was a process. It wasn't a process for the inside, uh, but it was a process because that was a divine soul in there but it was a process for the body to build that mind and create vessels that would come down until finally the whole thing became divine. That's why Jesus says, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He didn't have all power in heaven and on earth when he was six months old. He needed somebody to bundle him up and take him away from Herod because he didn't have all power. He developed that. He had the help of this amazing soul, but the mind had to kind of figure it out as it went along because there's something of a disconnect between there until you get that established, and it's the same thing with us. This is why it talks about that we need to prepare a way for the Lord, you know? It's sort of like trying to 
land a plane in the Andes Mountains or something. You know, I mean, you need to carve a runway to be able to receive this. It's all about getting something that's receptive down here. This is why you have this picture in Scripture of the building of the tabernacle. That they make a tabernacle. Let's go read that. It's so fun. I haven't read it for a little while. The end of Exodus chapter 40. They've been building the tabernacle and they build it and build it. It's just chapters and chapters about how they build the tabernacle. And when they, and let's read just 40 verse 33 and on from there. This is Moses working away. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. You understand, we just skipped to the very end of the movie and there he finished the work. And then what happened? Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Mm, that's right. So um, once you build it, then that spirit is able to come down. It has to be built in a particular way. Then that cloud comes down. It doesn't, it just, it doesn't come just in the middle of the desert. To nowhere, you know, lay out the tabernacle, make it in this way and so on. Then that cloud is able to come down. That's a picture of what went on with the Lord, with the forming of that mind, that when that mind was formed, then that divine cloud of the you know, Holy Spirit was able to fill, fill the whole thing. And I love the fact that Moses wasn't even able to enter the tent. And there's another story just like that with the, um, with the temple, Solomon's temple, he had the antenna all set up so he was able to receive that. And when you see Jesus in his 30s, he's, that antenna is working very well. He's, he knows what to do for people. He knows what they're thinking uh, you know, in their inmost hearts. He knows what's wrong with their bodies and how to fix it. Uh, he knows their life stories. He knows all this because his antenna is working very well. He didn't have all that when he was 12. Uh, that developed over time. What was inside stayed the same. What was outside changed. So, although I say silly things about the, uh, you know, it's worse even than, than being a Maytag repairman to be a reporter for the Divine Gazette, because uh, not, nothing ever changes. Uh, you're trying to write about God. It's still divine today. Um, but that news, when God became human, uh, when he was born, God born human, that is the most astounding thing. I don't think we, as a, as a race of people, scarcely understand the import of what happened there. I think we'll be able to see it ourselves more clearly when we go to the spiritual world. But that was actually huge, huge news. It was so immense. If you think about it, every myth since the dawn of time was about that. That's what they're all about. All those stories were just in anticipation of that amazing thing that was going to happen. Amazing thing that God was going to be born human. And every story and every movie in one way or another since then really at its heart is about that. That's, that, that's the only story. It's something so epic and so huge. All of religion, Swedenborg says, uh, prior to the Lord's coming into the world, what faith was, was essentially just this belief that the Lord was going to come. And ever since then, the essence of faith is to believe that He came. That's the biggest news ever. And I tend to think that the universe is expanding, constantly expanding, just so that it could somehow eventually contain that amazing news. The, the headline is too large to fit in this little universe we have. So it needs to keep expanding and expanding so that it can hold what that meant, the amazingness of the Christmas story. And I like to think that the true meaning of Christmas is not something that happened thousands of years ago, but something that has barely started to dawn on the human race but will become more and more powerful in the future as we understand what the Lord did, 
how he spared us by taking on evil, what he did in his redemption, what he did in his glorification, and that whole process. Inwardly, that's what all those stories in the Old Testament are about. All those battles uh, back and forth and back and forth, wandering in the wilderness, trying to conquer the land. It's all about the process that the Lord went through. Uh, it's what we're all, I hope, going to be thinking about to eternity and trying to come to a greater understanding of as we develop better vessels to try to glimpse what was going on there when God was born human. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thank you for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world, taking on the flesh, the weakness that we know so well, the ignorance, the blindness of being so young and confused, and then gradually through the agency of the word, building those vessels so that you could see more and more who you were, what you were doing here, and you could experience the most astounding thing anybody's ever experienced by becoming fully divine, not only in your soul, not only in your mind, but even in your body. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting so we can receive more of that divine spirit ourselves.